John chapter 5, verse 1 says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, and John tells us in Hebrew it's called Bethesda, the house of mercy, having five porches. And in there lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now I'm in trouble, spent thousands of dollars to give you all a gospel of John, and the next verse is not even in the gospel of John I gave you. Uh, the ESV, I love the ESV, but this verse is missing. Um, some translators just omitted it. Thank God the New King James and King James Version didn't. So I'll read it to you. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now there was a certain man there who had an infirmity 38 years. He was probably a paralytic. And when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered and said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and John tells us, it was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, it was cured. It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry a bed. That was work. He answered them and said, well, he who made me well said, take up your bed and walk. They said to him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the one who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Later, Jesus found him, verse 14, in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Every so often in a culture, probably five to ten years, you start to see new buzzwords arise, and then they get bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden it's all throughout culture. Well, the buzzword in our culture now is wellness. I mean, you can't even go to the supermarket, a spa. You can't go anywhere without seeing wellness. Uh, this is a consumer reports guide to wellness, all the healing superfoods and all the things you can buy. Uh, received this in the mail this week from Mainline Health. They're going to give me a free membership to their fitness and wellness seminar. There's scores of magazines. Even our magazine here last year of Mobilize was the wellness issue. So... So what is wellness? Well, the culture defines wellness as the idea that it's not just what we eat or exercise. There is now a mind or what we would call spirit component. They call it mindfulness. And they're on to something, right? Culture gets on to things, and they're on to the way we were designed by God. We are spirit, soul, and body. So in a world where stress has never been at a higher level, People are catching on. Look, it's not just about the physical body. There is another dimension to us, whether you call it spirit, mind, soul, whatever you want to call it. When Jesus comes to this man, he says, do you want to be made well? Now, the actual Greek translation is, and this is what Jesus wanted to know, do you want to be made whole was the idea. And uh, I'm going to argue that the guy wanted to be made well. That's the way the guy heard it. He heard it like a lot of people are hearing it today. Yeah, of course I want to be well. I want to get 
I want to get more juice out of the engine. I want to get ahead. I want to feel better. I want to do better. I want to, I want to act better. You know, I want to get well. There's something in this where I can live a better life than I'm living now. The question is, did the man want to become whole? That's what we're going to discover. And I'm going to argue there's a vast difference between wellness and wholeness, at least as Jesus offered it, or as we see it here in the Bible. And it all begins at one of my favorite places when we go to Israel, the Pool of Bethesda. It's in my top three, no doubt, for two reasons. Number one, St. Anne's Church is there. Now, on our tours, we do not go to churches, but we go to this church. And the reason we go there is it has perfect acoustics. So when you go there, teams like our team go in and we sit on the front pews. Everybody waits their turn, and then we sing. Acousticians come from all over the world because when you sing, if you're somebody like me, for one moment in time, you have perfect pitch. You sound amazing. Even I sound amazing. I know you don't believe it, but I really do. Not Pavarotti, I'm not Pacelli, but I sound amazing. Uh, Emily, who led worship today, is on our tour this time. She's going to sound like an angel. She's already an angel. She's really going to sound amazing. So there's that experience, and then I love, as we look at the site, so when you go to Israel, you tell people, okay, Jesus may have been here. He probably was here. He might have been here. But everything's within like five football fields of he was probably here. Well, this is one site that's a no doubt about it site. This is the Pool of Bethesda. It's in the northeast corner of Israel. It's at the Sheep Gate. Remember, Israel's a walled city like ancient cities. And so the Sheep Gate is where they would bring the lambs that were going to be slaughtered in the temple. Uh, and the Pool of Bethesda was there. Here's how we know. There was another church there. And in the, in the early church, what they did, when the church finally had money, they would build churches on sites. That's how they preserved it. Uh, so they would go and they would say, well, where do you think this happened? And where did this happen? And they would build a, a, a church. So they built a church at the Pool of Bethesda. When they tore down the church and went down to the foundations, they found all these columns. John tells us here there was five colonnades there, five terraces. And they found a bubbling stream there. Healing waters is the idea, or what we would think of as a hot spring. So once again, archaeology proves the Bible to be correct, and John's an eyewitness. By the time John's writing this, Jerusalem's already been destroyed, 70 AD. The Pool of Bethesda is probably no longer even there. And remember, he selects this sign. He's the only one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's the only one that remembers or finds it necessary to give us this account. So we're looking at the exact place that all these things happened. And the question is, you know, why is John telling us this? very important. Why, why do we need to know this? First of all, it's the house of mercy, the pool of Bethesda. Uh, John said there lay a great multitude of sick, paralyzed, lame, uh, in the hundreds at least, waiting to be healed. No hospitals in that day, no mental clinics. Verse 4, which is not in your ESV, um, John says an angel went down and would stir the water. So they would see bubbling in the waters, and they thought an angel had arisen out, and then water was coming off the angel's wings, and that's what you would see, you know, the little pools of water, maybe the bubbling of the water. Now, is John saying this happened, or he's saying this was a legend of the day? Um, this is why commentators, or this is why some translators took your verse out. Um, it's possible that an angel did this. It doesn't sound biblical. Sounds like extra biblical material. I know God can do anything. It doesn't sound legitimate. 
The problem we have is in Greek, there's no punctuation. We have no quotes. So John may be saying, this is what the people believe. Now, other people argue and say, well, if no one was getting healed, why was a man there for 38 years? Well, it doesn't say he was there for 38 years. It says he had the malady for 38 years. Then we don't know how often he came. And then if you wonder why would people go there, well, why do people go anywhere? You know, when people get really sick, they try everything, right? You know, we've experienced that. People go to Medjugorje, they go in the Ganges River. Tradition makes us do a lot of things. Sickness makes us do a lot of things. So we're not sure. But anyway, this guy comes and, you know, I have a motto. I didn't invent it. I just live by it. 90% of life is showing up. 90%. If you don't show up, you're guaranteed nothing will happen. Show up, something may happen. You came to church today, maybe something will happen. Somebody will buy you a cup of coffee. You'll meet a friend. Who knows? Well, this guy shows up. And guess what happens? The God of the universe walks in with hundreds of people there and comes to one guy and says, do you want to be made whole? Now, this is a head scratcher to me. Always has been. Because there's times where Jesus walked in and said he healed everyone. He walks in, finds one guy, heals him, and leaves everybody in that condition. And not only that, he finds the one guy who seems indifferent, doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body. This guy doesn't have faith. Uh, when Jesus heals him, he goes to the temple, he dimes Jesus out for healing him. Uh, there's nothing about this guy that's, that we can commend. And yet Jesus comes to this man and says, do you want to be made whole? Now, I got to tell you, if I've been paralyzed for 38 years, and I'm in a place where you can get healed, and a guy comes to me and says, do you want to be made whole? You know, my answer is like, is the Pope Catholic? You know, does a bear do what it does in the wood? Like, are you joking? Of course I want to be made whole. Of course, that's, why do you think I'm here? But he doesn't do any of that. He's a man of excuses. One after another. One excuse after another. There's no one to put me in the pool. There's no one to do this. And somebody gets in before me. Psychologists have a term for this. It's called learned helplessness. You see it all over our culture. Learned helplessness is a condition in which a person has learned to behave helplessly even when the opportunity for advancement or to solve the problem has been presented. Um, I'll give you a classic example, and I hope that person's not here today. But um, when we decided to go to the media theater on Sunday mornings, it was a big effort. In fact, when you look back, you think, how in the world do we do this? So we had guys get up, girls get up five in the morning. We had to load in a theater with sound and lights, and we had to load in a children's ministry across the street. And gargantuan effort, we did it for five years. And uh, so we had a training day, it was a Saturday, real early in the morning. And so I'm over with the training in children's ministry, and I'm running across the street to the theater. Now this is street parking, there's lots of street parking. You might have to walk a little, and then we had a parking lot at the school. So as I'm walking to the theater, a gentleman in church pulls up, he's late, and rolls down his window and, and he says to me, where are we going to park? Now I got to tell you, for three blocks on both sides, there was not one car that day. You know what that man decided? He decided moving to the media theater was a bad move because we weren't going to be able to park. So he pulls up with all this parking and says, where are we going to park? That's learned helplessness. That's what this man is going through. One excuse after another. This is what Israel went through, by the way, for 38 years. 
one excuse after another. Why did you bring us out into the desert to die? Why? You know, this is a man of excuses. And we hear it all the time. You, you come across this. You share faith with people. You share God. And you think, wow, people are curious. They're going to be open. And they're like, well, if you knew the family I grew up in. And I lost my job five years ago. And, and I lost my mom and dad. And they just go through a list of one excuse after another. I was reading about a, a Jewish man in Brooklyn. On the Sabbath day, his parents uh, would tell all the kids, close your eyes. And when we pray, the Spirit of God's going to come over the room. And he did this for a while, but when he turned like eight years old, he opened his eyes. And he noticed, so did everybody else. <laughs> and he said he noticed the Spirit of God never came in the room, and that's why he's an atheist today. Are you kidding me? Really? Like you really thought you were going to see God when your parents prayed? I mean, it's just an excuse. And people are filled with excuses when it comes to faith. There's always someone getting the blessings for you. Someone's always getting over me. Jesus says, you want to be made whole. Not well, do you want to be made whole. Here's how I know it's more than physical. Because in verse 14, when he finds the guy, he said, look, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Do you know what the worst thing that could come upon him you know, there's only one thing worse than paralysis. Does anybody know what it is? Death. The wages of sin is death. Now, please don't quote me out of context on this. Please hear what I have to say. Everything that's wrong with this world is a result of sin. Yes, Jesus used the S word, right? It's been eradicated from our culture. You know, no one sins against God or man. I know nobody's a sinner. We don't use the word anymore. Jesus says, sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. The worst thing that's going to come upon you is you're going to die one day. Majority of people in our culture fear death. The reason it's never talked about is because we fear it. We don't see it anymore. We don't work on farms. We don't see breach birth. We don't see any of these things anymore. And we put it as far as away. It's never going to happen. It's like Woody Allen. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? We're just afraid of death. When God put man in the garden, he said it was very good. Six days it's good. The sixth day it was very good. God rested. He gave man abundance of things. He said, the day that you sin, you will surely die. Adam and Eve sinned. They never died physically. They died spiritually. It took almost 900 years for it to happen physically. And that's how sin works. We are one breath away from eternity. One breath. Do you realize that? Breath is what's keeping us here. God holds your breath. You're one breath away from final destination. Do you want to be made whole? Jesus said, sin caused all these problems. Now, here's where I need you to keep me in context. When someone's sick, it's not because they sinned. We can't say that. We can't connect the dots. We can connect some dots. We can't connect those dots. As Obama once said, it's way above our pay grade, right? We just can't fill in those gaps. People try and do it all the time. This gets cleared up in a couple chapters when they encounter a blind man and the disciple says, who sinned that this man was born blind? The man or his parents? What was Jesus' answer? Neither. But that the glory of God might be revealed, he healed the guy. It's why the book of Job is in your Bible. Job was the most righteous man in the East and yet the greatest calamity happened to him. You can't connect the dots that way but understand all of this is a result of sin. So when Jesus says, do you want to be made whole, he's driving at something more than physical. 
He's driving at something underneath this man's sickness. And that is the idea that each and every one of us has a sin problem. We have a sin nature. That's why the angels on Christmas morning said, There is born unto you this day in Bethlehem a Savior, Christ the Lord. Not a healer. Not a teacher. A Savior, Christ the Lord. He was born for everyone, not a select few. Now, we're more familiar with the healing of another paralytic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. It's in Capernaum, where there's another paralytic, and his friends bring him on a stretcher to a Bible study Jesus has. Bible study's packed, so they climb up the, into the roof, and the houses had ladders on the back in those days, and they move away the thatch, and they lower the guy in. You all remember that story? So they lower the guy in. Imagine that, you're teaching a Bible study, and here comes, you know, you're right in the middle of Nehemiah or something, and they just bring this guy down. And uh, everybody's waiting for the show, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What? That's not what we came to see. And Jesus said, well, wait a second, what's harder to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? I can tell you all, hey, your sins are forgiven, right? How do we know, right? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But if I say rise up and walk, that's a pretty good indication that if I said your sins are forgiven, they are. And it's a pretty good indication that I'm God. Because only God can forgive sins, the rabbi said, and only God can heal. When they lowered that paralytic into the room, Jesus said, I can cure your dominant problem. In other words, you can live a life as a paralytic or you can be cured and go on and walk and live a life and then die and still never deal with sin. So Jesus, when he says, do you want to make holy? He says, look, I can heal you. And you can run again, you can play golf again, you can play basketball, you can do all the things you want to do, but here's the problem. You still haven't done with the, you haven't dealt with the internal problem. Um, sometimes Jesus' words are very difficult. There was a time where he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into eternity with one less member, like one less hand, uh, than to go in with two hands in outer darkness. That's a, that's a tough saying. And he's not talking about mutilation. He's talking about, it's a figure of speech saying, you know, it's about wholeness. I believe this is why John dips back. I believe that's why John records this story because we need to understand there's something beyond the physical. There's something that makes us whole. Um, kind of in the wedding season again, right? I had a wedding two weeks ago. I had a wedding last night. And when I have weddings, I, I love families. I love to do them. But I, I tend to grumble a little because I'm busy already and now I got a rehearsal and a wedding and they go on forever and I get home late. And so two weeks ago, I was grumbling. I had an hour drive and... And I'm, I'm finished the wedding, and this woman comes up. And she said, I hope you don't mind, but I filmed your talk. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine, but why would you do that? She goes, well, I wanted to send it back home. I'm like, where's home? She said, Saudi Arabia. She said, I put it on, like, our version of Facebook, because I never heard anybody talk about marriage that way from the book of Genesis. And the whole way in the car, I'm like, all right, God, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, sorry for complaining. And... What I love about these weddings is I stay, for the, uh, I stay for the celebration 
And they always put me at like the weird ad hoc table. Like, where are you going to put this pastor? So you put him with like strange people that aren't relatives at all. And I love it because I got a captive audience. And they already heard me talk, so some of them have questions. And I always start out with something like, uh, how many moons do you think fit into the sun? And then, and then that gets me going, you know, and, and, and we go on. This is what startles me. And it took me three years to come up with this term. Whenever I would talk to people like this, whenever I would witness to people like this, I would, I would experience, and I coined a phrase for it, casual indifference to the gospel. And I don't know if it's a Western thing, I don't know if it's an Eastern thing, I don't know what it is, but you share your heart with people and you think, my gosh, they're hearing the truth and I'm telling them these great things. And you think they would be curious like I was. Like the woman at the well, like Nicodemus, like, wow. The, instead, there's kind of like this nonchalance, like we don't even care. You know, we're, we're so prosperous and we're doing so well. You know, we're the happy pagans. Uh, this casual indifference to the gospel. This is why John tells this story. Because he wants us to know that there's a rejection rate to the gospel. The Bible's not just a bunch of fancy stories where, you know, Jesus comes to a woman at the well, she gets saved, tells the whole village. It's not a series of those things. There's a lot of rejection. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to see everybody leave Jesus. Everybody left David. You look at the Old Testament, you look at all the failings. The Bible, Bible's not afraid of those things. And so we have this encounter here where this man is just casually indifferent to what is truly wrong with him and our society. And when I sit at tables with those people, I realize they're not paralyzed physically, but they're paralyzed by other things. They're paralyzed by fear. They're paralyzed by the things that have happened to them. They're, pure, they're paralyzed by, by all the things that life has brought them. The book of Romans is pretty emphatic, and everybody should read the book of Romans, that man is guilty before God. Chapter 1, Gentiles are guilty. Just look at the creation of the world. Man has no excuse, Paul said. Just look at creation, and man is without excuse. There is a God. Chapter 2, the Jews have no excuse. They have the law, the covenants, the activity of God. You know, think about this. God said, I am the God, not of creation. He said, I'm the God who led you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And in chapter 2, it says that because of what the Jews have done, the name of God has been blasphemed among the Gentiles, so the Jews are guilty. And then chapter 3 is the conclusion. It's brilliant. Look. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And I share with you last week, God is the seeker. He's the one that finds a woman at the well, a man at the pool of Bethesda, a blind man. And so this is what you come against. This is what, this, this is what we had to be relieved of, right? It's like you have to get people unsaved to get them saved. The Bible says there's no one that loves God, there's no one that's good, and yet everybody you talk to thinks they are good. It's amazing. God's going to judge on some great big curve. Now, here's what I love about this. John says it's at the sheep gate. He says it's a feast. I don't know what feast it is, but I know what feast I want it to be. I want it to be Passover. And I got a 33% chance of it being Passover because that's when male Jews had to be there Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. 
So if it is the sheep gate, Jesus is ministering to this man. This, this fascinates me. While sheep are being taken for slaughter, also, do you ever ask the question, where is God? Now, we know he's everywhere, right? But in the person of Jesus, you know, we could track, right? Like a GPS, like people know your whereabouts now. We know where God is. Fascinates me that while all the Jews are in the temple, as they should have been, you know, one of the great gifts God gave to Israel was their calendar. They had this one day and seven the rest. It was like a snow day for you and me. Just sit around, no work, just have a good time. And then he gave them seven feast days. There was always something to look forward to. But if this is the Passover, everybody's celebrating, they're singing, they're giving, they're slaughtering animals. Where's God? The sick, the lame, the outcast, what we would call the forgotten people. No, they're not, they weren't forgotten in this culture because you could see them. There's no hospitals, no clinics. You know, you'd see people like this all the time. But they're forgotten in our day because they're institutionalized. And yet this is where God is. This fascinates me. Uh, Jesus later said, my father and I work until now. Instead of being at the temple, Jesus comes to this man. You know what he's telling this man? Rise up and walk. He's saying, you don't need these waters, which tells me it wasn't an angel because Jesus wouldn't contradict what God was doing. You don't need the temple. You don't need a church. You don't need a pay. You, don't, you need me. Because I'm the source of living water. Same thing he told the woman at the well. There's coming a time where you're not going to worship on this mountain or in the temple. That those who worship God are going to worship in spirit and truth. You need me. And to prove it, rise, take up your bed, and walk. The question is, was the man made well or was he made whole? See, people that are made whole have a deep and abiding sense of who God is. They become like the Apostle Paul who says to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's hard to say in our culture, right? We live in a culture where nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. It's amazing, right? So when you go to the airport, right, say you're going to Hawaii, but then you, you walk down all the gates and it says Detroit, Cleveland, San Francisco, right? That's what death is for the Christian. There's one day where you're going to go to your gate and it's going to say heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Paul did. He said, as long as I live, as long as there's breath, it's Christ. When I die, it's going to be gain. That's wholeness. That's maturity. Shadrach, Meshach, and a friend Abednego, Daniel's friends, facing the fiery furnace. Our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. But if not, it's not a lack of faith. We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we ever bow down to this image. That's wholeness. Job said, though he slay me, I'll serve him. That's wholeness. Horatio Spafford wrote one of the great hymns of the Christian church, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing a variation of it here many Sundays. He lost his only son in a Chicago fire. His wife and four daughters were going to Europe. He receives a telegram from his wife, saved alone, all four daughters died. Later, he goes to meet her on a ship in the exact place where they drowned. And he writes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to know, it is well, 
it is well with my soul. That's wholeness. See, wellness is attractive. And there's a gospel of wellness. There's a gospel that's very attractive, and that is, you know, just add Jesus on, and you'll do a little better in life, right? You know, if you're a ball player, you might score a couple more goals, get a couple more yards, but Jesus is your sidekick. If you're in business, you get a little more money, maybe find a spouse, get a bigger house. You know, Jesus is a pretty good guy to have along, right? There's a gospel of wellness, but the real gospel is a gospel of wholeness. Naked I came into this world, naked I'm leaving. You know, praise God, he's the one who's given me all these things. I was talking to a gentleman the other day who was saying his whole goal, like Jesus, is to be unknown. And once again, Jesus didn't say, hey, everybody, I'm going to heal this guy, and then you'll know I'm the son of God. He slips out after healing the man. Do you want to be made whole? He tells him, rise up, take your bed, and walk. And it says the man was instantly healed. Now, there's a problem. It was on the Sabbath day. We talked about this last week, right? Quoted Abraham, Joshua, Heschel, and all that the Sabbath meant. And I argued that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He fulfilled the law, the Old Testament. He fulfilled all the feast days. He was the Passover lamb, Paul said. The first fruits rise from the dead. Church was born on Pentecost. And he completes the Sabbath that you and I would have a final rest. And they find him and... Uh, it, it allows Jesus to enter in to this discourse, which is amazing, as the Jews seek to kill him. Verse 19, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even the Son will give life to whomever he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall come, not come into judgment but has passed from death into life, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. This is what God Jesus killed. Jesus went to a cross because he claimed to be God. That's why they killed him. And this healing allowed him to go into that discourse and would finally put him on a cross. The final Passover lamb, the final Passover, the life-giving water and all the healing now would come through Jesus. No longer through waters and tradition and all the things that people in our day run after. Here's the beautiful thing. When the writer of Hebrews comes along, and we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but he was an amazing dude. He writes in chapter 4, therefore there now is a rest for the people of God. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. He's talking about Israel. But God swore they would not enter into my rest. For God spoke at a certain place that on the seventh day he rested from all his works. 
And again, another place, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, it remains that we must enter into it, that the, those who was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. And he designates a certain day, saying to David today, that if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but that we should enter his rest. For if Joshua, or the entire law, or the Old Testament, had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself, listen, also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let me put a bow on this, okay? God creates the world, he rests on a seventh day. You, you, you gotta believe he wasn't tired, come on, right? It's not like God said, geez, I just created the universe, I think I'll take a break. He spoke the world into existence, the word of his power. The idea of God resting was that it was very good and that it was finished. This is the idea, by the way, of your work-rest balance. So what, I don't know if you work four days, five, I don't know what your schedule is, but the idea is after five days of work, you enter into recreation, which is recreation, which is leisure. The idea of leisure isn't to like party it up, but it's to do the things you enjoy so you can go back to what you do for work. The idea is you cease from your labor. And I'm preaching to myself, by the way. Like my finish line's in like an hour. And when I leave, I need to leave everything undone until Tuesday because that's got enough trouble for itself. So I'm preaching to myself right now. God rested because it was complete. It was finished. Sound familiar? What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. It's over. There's no more Sabbath, no more feast days, no more full moons. There's, it's, it's done. And he ceased from his labor. And so do we. We are those who are no longer struggling. Where am I going when I die? Does God know a part of my life? We're not struggling with any of those things. Now, God didn't stop working. Jesus said, here, my father and I have worked even till now. One commentator said, there can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. People come along and say, there can't be a God. Look at all the suffering. Yeah, because you can't see the God in the suffering. And you can't see the people he's using. You haven't been to these places. There's a pastor I really respect who talks about his dad quite often. And one of the things he tells the story about his dad, his dad was a businessman. And uh, they would eat an early Sunday dinner about 4 o'clock. And everybody knew the drill. They would sit around the table. They would talk about church that day and life and whatever. And then his dad would say, all right, who's going with me tonight? For 30 years at 6 o'clock at night, he went to the local nursing home and walked into every room, prayed for people, gave them communion, talked to them. Because they're the forgotten. They're the forgotten of our day. Never publicized it to anyone. If his son didn't become a famous preacher, no one would have heard the story. See, God's working every day. He's working through you and me. And as long as there's suffering, we're working. It's one of the great arguments for Christianity. Yes, we have to explain suffering. Unbelievers have to explain everything else. And how Christianity has been at the forefront of alleviating suffering because God suffered. And Jesus comes to this man and he says, do you want to be made whole? 
That's a question for you this morning. Do you want to be made whole? Not well. I know you can go on and live a great life and you can be made well. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to know where you came from, where you're going? Do you want to be known by the God that created you? Do you want to be intimate with God? That's, that's the question. That's the gauntlet that was thrown down. And Jesus is the only one that can make you whole. If you're already a Christian, wholeness is God's objective. And he's going to work on you till you get there. So you can go willingly or you can kick and scream. So a guy last night comes up to me at about six beers, and he goes, John 3.16, right? I'm like, what? John 3.16, God's who loved the world. He goes, I prayed that prayer. He goes, back then, God used to speak to me. He goes, he goes I knew he was listening. He goes, ain't nobody listening anymore. I said, well, here's, here's what I, I don't know a lot, but I know this. God never moved. So you must have moved, Right? He wants to bring you to maturity. He wants to bring you to wholeness. He wants you to grow in love and grace. And, you know, the Bible says the closer we get, the, the, the more we're going to experience, the more we're going to see. He saved the best for last. 